Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is sponsored by Amazon Publishing, publisher of the critically acclaimed thriller Brilliance by Marcus Seiki. Brilliance introduces readers to an alternate present day. In Wyoming, a little girl reads people's darkest secrets by the way they fold their arms. In New York, a man sensing patterns in the stock market racks up $300 billion. These gifted people are called brilliance, and since 1980, 1% of people have been born this way. Their differences have become a source of fear and prejudice among normal people. Federal agent Nick Cooper is a brilliant, and his talent makes him exceptional at hunting terrorists. His latest target may be the most dangerous man alive, a brilliant responsible for mass murder and intent on provoking civil war. But to save the world, Agent Cooper may have to betray his own kind. Gillian Flynn, the best-selling author of Gone Girl, raves, Brilliance is the kind of novel that makes you grin at its high-flying feats of imagination and then grin harder because it sticks the landing. It's thrilling and funny and disturbing and sharp as hell. For more information, please visit MarcusSakey.com or go to Amazon. You can also follow Marcus on Twitter, at Marcus Sakey. That's Brilliance. It's a thriller available now from Thomas and Mercer, an imprint of Amazon Publishing. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is more of a conversation than an interrogation. This is virtually impossible without you. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy, uh, as you just heard, and I'm reporting to you from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world. Uh, me, how am I doing? I'm a little on edge. I'm a little on edge. I've been reading a book called This Town by uh, Mark Leibovich. I think that's it. Leibovich? Leibovich? Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this book. It's an expose about the political and financial and media elite of Washington, D.C. The D.C. Uh, machine, essentially. The political class. And, uh... 
It's about the intersection of all kinds of power and the spectacular perversions that result. And uh, what I've noticed is that the book has made me anxious and uh, depressed about uh, humanity. (laughs) Uh, In much the same way uh, that, say, uh, too much caffeine might make me anxious or some kind of other uh, amphetamine, uh, which is another way of saying that uh, like what we ingest, including books, including books, has an actual impact on how we feel. Physically, emotionally, etc. It's real. And I've only recently come around to uh, giving this notion it's just due because uh, the reality, I guess, is that books have a powerful impact on me. They can have a lasting effect uh, on my psyche and my worldview. And uh, I guess the same is true of movies and television, anything that I ingest with my sensory organs. And so... I think what this means is uh, I need to be careful about what I ingest. And, you know, I want to be clear here. Uh, You know, I want to read widely. I don't want to limit myself to milquetoast affirmations and uh, sunny self-help books or anything like that. But I do find myself wondering if it's worthwhile to engage consistently in the super dark in the dystopian, in the realm of uh, serial killers and soulless corporate fat cats and so on. You know, I, uh, I have a friend, a buddy of mine from way back when, ever since he had children, uh, he can't watch violence in movies. That's what he tells me. It bothers him too much. It makes him think of his, uh, his sons. So now he, he just watches comedies. And, uh, and like the Hobbit and stuff like that, which does have some violence, but it's, you know, it's Hobbit violence. Hobbit violence is okay. It's different when Gandalf does it. So, uh, I should probably add some backstory here. You know, I used to be an absolute news junkie and not too long ago either, like a year ago. Uh, I was an absurd consumer of all forms of news, political news in particular, televised, print, online, all of it. And uh, you may not know this about me. I'm fascinated by politics and uh, what the machinations, the machinations of power, how men and women acquire uh, power and then try to use it or in uh, most cases abuse it. And so along the way, I think I became addicted to this toxic news cycle as cable television metastasized and the online world exploded and everything became 24-7 and the spigot started flowing nonstop. And uh, to rationalize the addiction, uh, I, would couch, uh, I would couch it in the context of civic duty. <laughs> I would tell myself, you know, like, I need to pay attention. They need me on this wall. It's a dirty job, but someone has to do it. That kind of thing. But in retrospect, mostly I was just polluting my brain. That's what I've come to. I don't know how much benefit there was, uh, you know, from this kind of consumption. So much of it was repetitive. So much of it was absurd. I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't see it sooner. There was a lot of contorting going on. 
by you know various members of the media, both in print and on TV, uh, in their quest for ratings and clicks and so on. So, uh, like, while I do feel that I probably have a better understanding of our government than, say, the average uh, American, it wasn't enough to keep me going. In this particular vein, anyway. I pulled the plug. That was it. Like I just said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not watching these shows anymore. I'm not reading all of these websites. I'm done. And the truth is that I've noticed a positive difference. Uh, I'm, I'm a little less stressed. And you know what? I, I also remain decently well-informed. Because it's not like I read no news. I just, I just ingest a lot less news. And, I, and in particular, I ingest a lot less of a particular kind of news. Which is to say cable news. You know, these days I just read a couple of things uh, that I like. You know, I'll read the Times. I'll look at the Washington Post. I'll read uh, Andrew Sullivan, Jonathan Chait. I guess I read more than most people, but it's, you know, it's better than it was. And I no longer have cable television in my house, which is a huge help. So, uh, anyway, I'm reading this book. It's called This Town, and it's well done. And it's funny, too. Darkly funny. And to me, it feels like Leibovich uh, became so profoundly appalled by the toxicity all around him that he finally just said, fuck it, I'm going to write down exactly what's happening. Which, as a career move, uh, is interesting, because he's a journalist, and it seems that he basically self-immolated. He exposed a lot of powerful people uh, from his social and professional circles, and, you know, one has to wonder what the fallout, you know, has been and will be. This is an ugly, vindictive crowd that doesn't like to have egg on its face. Big egos. So, it's a juicy read. Maybe I should have him on the show. I'd like that. I, you know, I don't know if he would do it because, you know, this is a big media book and, you know, he's done a ton of mainstream press interviews. So it's possible that he's burnt out. So that's what I'm reading and it's making me feel anxious in that old familiar way. And I wanted to share that with you. I wanted to impart to you my emotional discomfort. Like in addition to being a pretty astute commentary on the corrupting influence of power and money, uh, it's also a book full of gossip and super snarky anecdotes and miniature portraits of famous people in politics and the media uh, behaving in unsettling and often embarrassing ways. Like a lot of like good little details. Uh, like, for example, like good little details that uh, disturb you and you can't shake them out of your mind. For example, I just read a scene a few minutes ago involving Morgan Freeman giving a foot massage to Katie Couric at an after party. <laughs> uh, so this is my literary intake. I feel like maybe that went off the rails. Did I just go off the rails? 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Abigail Tartalin, the multi-talented Abigail Tartalin. She has worked as an actress over in the UK uh, and also as a writer with great success. Her new novel, Golden Boy, has just been published in the United States by Atria Books. It was originally published in the UK. Uh, Abby is of English descent. And I believe she has just wrapped up her first North American tour. I'm very happy to have her here, and I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Abigail Tartalin, and her new novel, once again, is called Golden Boy. So, uh, welcome to my dojo. Thank you very much. It's good to have you here. I'm going to cut that from the show, but um, <laughs> we are sitting here at what? Uh, right around midday on the 22nd of July. You looked to me like you had to confirm that. I need to think. <laughs> I need to think it through. But the the point is that the royal baby is is imminent, and you are from England. Oh my God! You know what? I thought that it had been born. Has it not? I, you know what? I haven't checked my. Everyone CNN. asked me about this, and um, you know, on the flight on the way in. Whenever I'm walking around, people meet me and I actually, um, I used to work in a fish and chip shop and one of the chefs was from Birmingham in England, but he said, oh, I'm from Jamaica, randomly in conversation. And I said immediately, oh my God, have you seen Cool Runnings? Because that's <laughs> the first question that I would think of. I ask and, that of every Jamaican I meet. Absolutely, me too. <laughs> and then when I say I'm English, people go, how's the royal baby doing? Right. <laughs> And I don't know. Yeah. And actually, I've been asked, how's the baby, before I knew there was a royal baby. And I was like, I'm not pregnant. Okay, so let's, <laughs> let's, let's deal with this a little bit, because it, like, we don't have... I think celebrities are our royalty in this country. Right. So yeah. we, like, we, that's what it is, basically. It's just like entertainment, or it's do you have... It's like celebrities, except that you gain your fame without any merit other than your blood. So you... I mean, do you feel a sense of antipathy? I, no, well, actually... I'm not, I wouldn't say antipathy. I'm, um, I'm, 
I will say an anti-royalist because in England you'd call them a Republican and of course that means something completely different here. Right. So um, I... I'm not a fan of the royal family. I I think the idea of... One thing that I really like about the States is that your top dog is the president. And obviously there are obstacles that people have to um, overcome. But technically, anyone born here can be the top dog. And in Britain, that's not the case. And I think that that sends a message about the class system that we have had in place for thousands of years and um and about how british society is right now and where we need to go really yeah so i'm not a fan of the royal family yeah no I disappointingly so. to many californians <laughs> <laughs> i you know i think there's like a weird fascination with it I, you know but i'm with you class class structures and people just being like born into lucky situations and receiving all sorts of adulation for nothing yeah makes no sense and i mean they they're born in but you know like a few hundred years ago they fought their way in by killing a bunch of people and (laughs) knocking someone else off and um so it's not like i don't think it's the um most interesting um period of our history and i think it's funny because there are so many like period tv shows and costume dramas that talk about royals and the tudors and everything but i find the lives of normal people much more interesting and they're much harder to um find out about over the course of britain's history because people tend to concentrate on royalty well yeah no i mean all the history is told by the winners you know totally yeah so (laughs) do you feel any so you feel like no stirrings of like national pride when like the royal baby is born there's nothing in like no just like disgust that there (laughs) are so many glossy magazines and trees being pulped to talk about that baby okay okay. um yeah okay good and so you just moved to the united states (laughs) yeah you're just are you not just to get away from that okay (laughs) there are multiple there are multiple things you were trying to get away from not just the royal baby um but no you how long have you been here um, I've been here since Thursday. Oh, shit. So yeah. you just moved here. Yeah. Well, I've been back and forth um, quite frequently over the last couple of years because I was researching a book and um, my American publishers are over here and um, they are great and require me or ask me to be here quite a lot of the time and I'm very happy to oblige. Um, I just did an American tour and then I nipped home after that to see my family and now I've come you back nipped out home? Here. I nipped home. That's nice. I hopped on that plane. <laughs> I scooted across the water. Yeah. And so then you decided to come here permanently, or at least like for a spell. Yeah. I, I applied for a visa and we won't get into that because that's a long process, but, yeah. um, but I have a three year visa now. So, um, I'm going to work and research another book and see what happens. That's cool. And why, yeah. and, you, and you settled on Los Angeles, but you act as well. Um, yeah, I do, but I, because I'm a British citizen, you apply for one thing. You, I can't act while I'm here, and oh, really? I'm kind of cool with that. Yeah, I I did a lot of acting in the UK, but I the, one of the reasons that I started writing was because it's almost the same thing. You're pretending to be someone else, but you're typing it down instead of acting it out. And you don't need permission to do it. And you don't need permission. So, right. um, so, But in the UK, I was getting offered a lot of roles like silent girlfriends or nice girls or and then on the flip side um prostitutes just all the time like hey abby um i heard you weren't doing anything this week nightmare like we have a last minute slot that open it's for a prostitute please excuse the pun i was gonna say um 
and they thought of me but i i didn't really want to play those parts so i thought you know what i'm gonna have a better time pretending to be really interesting people and writing it down and then maybe one day that will translate into being able to create interesting roles for film and television that for women basically well that's cool i mean i think like I mean, I don't know. I can relate to that frustration. I think it's like a proactive thing to do, like rather than to just accept this limited flow of roles that you get to just say, you know what, I'm going to, I don't have to live with that. I'm going to write my own. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people in the um, creative industries who think I want to be, and then their job title, like I want to be an actor. I always wanted to be an actor. And I did always want to do that, but I didn't, I don't want to be an actor in that sense. I didn't want to just stand around having my hair done and then like looking nice on telly. I wanted to play really funny parts, like kooky parts and explore. Um, it sounds really pretentious, I, but explore like something to do with humanity. And um, I get to do that in books and I don't have to wait around for it to be edited and I don't have to wait for someone else to write it. Um and it, I, do, I don't even have to wait for a publisher nowadays. You could s totally self-publish. But um, luckily for me, I did get a publisher. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like a, it, it comes down to control. And I think like when I think about actors, because I live in Los Angeles and there's, you know, tons of them around here. It's a tough profession. Yeah. You've got, you've, you have so much waiting. So much, I mean, you have a lot of rejection in writing as well. But, you know, you can't do it unless someone says yes to you. But at least with writing, you can sit down and write and you have total control absolutely which is an enormous burden and you know in some respects as well but you know it's yeah, a lot it's of creative nice freedom. to be able to do something i think and to not feel trapped in a situation and i think it's about control and power because as the creator of everything like as you are when you're a writer of a novel yeah um you have the power to get it done absolutely it's all up to you and then get it out to people and um as an actor you're just you you're very powerless and people I think people treat actors very poorly and I was involved in the union our actors union quite a lot back in England and um just that was a that was a really sad in, insight into how people treat actors in terms of like not paying them properly or um just treating them as if they're disposable and you can get another one immediately which you can get another warm body to come and stand there but you know that the talent and experience you can't really recreate. So, so I, I'm, so yeah, I became a writer because I thought that I would have more power and I do. And, and, um, do you like it better? I like how I'm treated as an author better. I was talking to someone the other day about, um, the class system in Britain actually, and like media and how, when I was an actor, I would say to people, oh, I'm an actor. And they would say, oh, what have you done? And I'd say, well, this indie movie. And they'd say, oh, I've never heard of that. And, um, as, and that's a very British experience because the whole class thing is about like, you have to be down for me to be up. So instead of here where people are quite enthusiastic about other people's experiences, it tends to be that situation. But as a writer, the moment you say you're an author, people go, oh, interesting. So I feel like I get treated better. And I feel like that's, uh, that makes a huge difference to my life. Yeah. Like in, in what ways? Just like you're just your own peace of mind, like your own happiness. Self-worth and self-esteem and thinking, um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. He's worked as a production assistant, um, on lots of things. And we were talking about self-worth and, uh, she just started a new job and they were treating her like dirt. And she thought, you know, my time is worth more than this. And, um, so she left. 
like Actually. yeah after two days but the i think self-worth is something that you gain from doing something by yourself and and seeing it seeing it go global and and reach other people and and obviously being published is um has been really wonderful for reaching well, people so let's uh i want to i want to dial back a little bit and hear more about like where you're from and then how you you know obviously we, we know that you've published a book but like i want to start kind of from the beginning and then work towards that okay so uh, i think before we came on the air you said you're from grimsby yes which is a small town because yeah. forgive me for having a poor um that's okay understanding <laughs> of, of english geography but like what grimsby is outside of london where is it yeah okay. it's like it's a four-hour drive north of London. Oh, okay. So it's a good ways out. Yeah, for England, anyway. <clears throat> and um, it's a small fishing town. And it did you... Our claim to fame was that it used to be the biggest fishing port in the world, but it's now no longer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it used to be a very beautiful Victorian town because there was a big boom, kind of like the Industrial Revolution, but with fish. And... Um, so there were tons of gorgeous houses built and and all that's sort of seeped away because they fish too much, basically. They overfished the ocean and there, there wasn't any left. And Isn't that, that seems insane to me when you think about, like, you can actually overfish the ocean and yeah. just take all the fish. <laughs> yeah. It seems crazy. Yeah, it does. I clearly, and know, obviously, I clearly know nothing about fishing. but Well, I mean, they knew a lot about fishing and they didn't really predict that <laughs> right. that would happen. Right. So um, it's not particularly particularly a salubrious town. It's quite grim, as, as the name su- suggests. But um, I really like it. I think it's um, I think it's very English. And you have a seaside where you can, you know, buy a Mr. Whippy ice cream and donuts and go to the arcades and play on what we call the slotties, you know, where you put money on and yeah. Yeah. It's nice in the summer. I mean, it's like, a, do people come out there in the summer or no? Um, it's not, there are kind of prettier places to go, but okay. I'm sure that some people do. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's a beautiful place. So, uh, do you come from creative people? I do come from very creative people, but no one that's ever really worked solely as a creative person. Um, and probably, I mean, maybe I think it's a lot to do with, um, that we are as a, as a planet much richer now. And I've been able to, I worked as a waitress and then use that to support myself to sometimes not work for a few months and write a book. And, um, my parents always had to work and my mom worked as a deputy director for a charity that she started. And it was about providing childcare for working parents and my dad um, still works as a conservationist. Um, so they're do-getters. They're do-getters. That's yeah, good. that's cool. <laughs> yeah. My heart, my they're cockles hippies. are warm. <laughs> are they? Yeah. They're, okay, you have hippie parents. Yeah. So nurturing, but the nurturing, and they would be understanding. If you know, I'm. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah, that was something that when I went to school, some you know people would say, oh, I have to choose my, I guess what you call electives, like A levels. And they'd say, oh, my mom's really saying that I can't do art. I have to do maths. And I would never have, you know, thought to ask my parents what I should be doing. Um, but they're great like that. I think they let me and my brother do pretty much whatever we wanted. Um, they had, and, and they had, I mean, were you from a young age demonstrating creative impulses? Um, yes, I suppose so. Yeah. Okay. So they could see it. It wasn't like this was something you were like doing in private. I mean, you were like, no, yeah, no, I wasn't ashamed. I yeah. wasn't a shameful writer. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, I've, I've written forever 
and um and always like acted and messed around and yeah because it, but it is sort of like an uncommon coupling to be a writer but then also to be a performer because a lot of writers are super introverted and aren't necessarily demonstrative and you can do both well, you know, funnily enough, I never thought that writers were introverted until I started doing live readings and people said people said that they really enjoyed the live readings, which was good. But then they said, oh, yeah, because, you know, writers, sometimes they, they're not very good at reading their books out loud. And I, d- I just didn't see the connection between, I guess, I guess it's an obvious connection, sitting alone by yourself in a room for hours on end and you have no social contact and you're just typing away and then you become an introvert. <laughs> but I didn't really think about that. And I think maybe that was... I think in a way isolation from a creative community because where I where I grew up and where I came from there's not a huge amount of access to um I don't know writers groups or things like that it definitely wasn't a city the nearest city was 45 minutes away drive so which is what what's it Lincoln Lincoln okay <laughs> you know. and um the but because of that isolation I think it was almost freeing because I didn't have any um, preconceptions about what being a writer would mean. I didn't think, oh, you know, I have to be, I have to be introverted or I have to write every day. I know that some people say you have to write every day. I don't. You don't? No. When do you write? Um, when I feel like it, (laughs) but if I do, if I write and I don't feel like it, it ends up being awful. Right. So, so do you write in like these huge compulsive bursts? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like you can sit down and write like 20 20 pages in a sitting or Um, something like that. Yeah. No, I, when I wrote Golden Boy, I, um, had the idea. It took me a good two years after I wrote my first book to have another good idea. And I actually wrote two manuscripts that haven't been published and I'll maybe work on them a bit later, but you know, I don't, I'm not really feeling them right now. Um, but they, I forced myself to write them and they didn't turn out that well. And then, um, I had the idea for Golden Boy and I made some notes and I started typing a little bit and then it got to about 20,000 words and this, the, the kind of the snowball rolling down the hill has started to gather speed. And um, I took a month um, and I sat down and I wrote 5,000 words every day. And that's how I write. Um, 5,000 words in a day. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Were they good words? Um, most of them are still in the book. Yeah. I mean, it went through a few edits. Are you manic? I mean, like, do you like, cause I mean, I, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to pose a rude question. You crazy? <laughs> no, but I have friends who are, you know, I have friends who have like, you know, I'm, I envy it in a way because like, I'm more of like a plodding. I'm really slow. And like to be able to write that quickly would be wonderful. So like, and, and I find like that I have friends who like, they go in these bursts and it's like mania, you know, and they just, you know, mm. and then they'll go into kind of a fallow period where nothing happens. Yeah. And, but you seem... You don't seem that way. You seem fairly... I, well, I, I I think there are good and bad things. That There are many ways to climb that mountain, and there are good and bad aspects of all those ways. I feel like with the people I know who write, um, who take a lot of time to write and put a lot of thought into it, um, they they seem to come up with much more, I guess, I guess thought much more um, eloquent writing. And with Golden Boy, I wrote it in a burst of kind of passion and I knew what the story was going to be and I wrote it in the first person for every single voice in the book. So 
because it's in the first person, you're not going to be incredibly literary in your style. It's going to be more accessible because it's people's voices. Um, but um, And I wanted it to be a more accessible book. I wanted to talk about something, intersexuality and gender, that was unusual, but make it accessible to a normal audience. So I think that, that that's good. But um, I do think that I sometimes, because I go so quickly, I... I'm not as literary as other people just yet, but hopefully that will become part of the whole instinctual writing over time. Well, but I think, see, you know, just to counter, I feel like sometimes the best writing that I do is the writing that happens fast in that, you know, when there's, when you're passionate about what you're saying, when you're not second guessing and like, you know, triple guessing yourself on every line you write, which I can, you know, sometimes do. There's a, it's a freer process. And so sometimes it's like first thought, best thought. Yeah, I do think there's something to be said for instinct and just letting your brain do the work rather than your mind in, yeah. in a way, you know? Yeah. Conscious thought, leave it aside for a moment and just write. And you're, I mean, you're also relatively young, right? You're younger, you're way younger than I am. How, I mean, wait, you're in your 20s. I'm, yeah, I'm 25. My mother would be slapping me. You never ask a woman <laughs> her age, but you're a young writer. Uh, Everybody asks me my age. And then I feel like, oh my God, am I young? Should I be, should I be, should I be less older? cocky? <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, you're at the beginning of your career and you're sort of precocious and young and publishing books at, at an age <laughs> when most people are not. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. Okay. So then as you were growing up and then you get into acting, like, were you doing all of this stuff? Like when you got into your high school years, like, did you start taking this stuff like were you writing trying to write books when you were a teenager were you one of those no no actually writing has been quite different from acting i chose to do acting because i really enjoyed it but writing has always just been a compulsion and um i wrote the i've always enjoyed it but it's always been compulsive um i wrote the first half of my first novel flick which is it's coming out here next year um sort of in dribs and drabs and then I didn't write it uh, I didn't work on it again for two years and then I woke up in the middle of the night I would come back to it and think it's kind of, for me books are like a problem that you have to solve and the one I'm working on at the moment is exactly the same I'm trying to leave my brain to whir away and then hopefully I wake up and I will know how to finish it and I will know the links that link together the plot that I, the bits of plot that I do have already. Well, and you know what, let me stop you there because I think this is an important point. I think this is an important point for people who are like maybe potentially stuck in the creative process, trying to write a book is that it, I think what you're getting at and correct me if I'm wrong is the role of like the subconscious mind. Yeah. And it gets a little tricky to talk about cause it can sound silly or it can sound pretentious, but sometimes you have to just like sleep on it or you have to let like you say, you have to turn off your conscious mind and like, mm. there's some weird, mysterious subconscious process that goes on, uh, and you know, that allows you to solve the puzzle. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. God, I'm horrible at talking no, about it. No, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think that I'm much better at giving advice than I am at guessing it. But the advice I always give to myself, and I know it to be true, is that when you just allow yourself to not consciously think about a problem when you let it wear away in the back of your mind you find the solution and then when you allow yourself to wait to write until it is right for you to be writing then 
you come up with a much better book. As, oppo- as opposed to like forcing it and like hammering yeah. yourself into some crazy discipline. Yeah. You're, solving, think, you're solving all my problems for me right now. I think it's very hard though, because when you think, okay, I want to write another book and I have to write it now. And I have a two book deal in the UK. So I have a May deadline. You don't always have to stick to them, but I'd, I'd like to. Sure. Um, so you think, yeah, but I have this idea. I want to sit down. I want to finish it. I want to write it. And I, I sometimes spend a bit of time thinking, well, was this idea conscious or was it subconscious? Because if it was subconscious, great. Um, but if I forced it, then it probably won't work. So the idea I'm working on now um, is a bit like that. Like I'm trying not to force it. I'm letting it were. And um, it comes when it comes. So how did it originate? Like, are you one of those people who dreams novels and then wakes up and writes down or? Yeah. I actually, yes, you are. Okay. Yeah. I was joking. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, oh, I thought that maybe you'd like a lot of people were like that. Maybe um, I think maybe they are, but I was like, that was like a stab in the dark. It happens to be true. Yeah, it does. And it's not necessarily, I sometimes daydream and then I'll have a conversation and with golden boy, I daydreamed a conversation between, um, a teenage boy and, uh, a younger brother. And they were talking about, um, the teenage boy is talking about whether he can have kids or not. And it's not something that obviously normal teenage boys think about, but I just thought that that it was quite a touching idea to present the idea that maybe you had to make a decision when you were a teenager that would affect whether that would affect the rest of your life and would affect whether you could have kids or a family. And, um, and then his younger brother obviously doesn't know really what he's talking about, but is in tune to his emotion. So that was the first scene I wrote from Golden Boy. And it's... Um, Why did you daydream that? Do you have, have any idea? no idea. No. Some sort of maternal thing happening? Possibly. Maybe. I don't know. I... Yeah, I have no idea. And it, it happened with the same with the first book. I immediately woke up... I woke up one night with um, the idea of how to structure it in very... I put it in very short chapters because I wanted to appeal to teenage boys again. And um, I thought what would be great for a short attention span this would for somebody who maybe doesn't read books that often that i wanted to write a book for people like that but um <laughs> i dreamt to say it. most people <laughs> yeah maybe yeah and a few of my friends who don't read yeah. have read it and said oh i really enjoyed your book it was so easy right so um yeah i'm not sure but i do i do dream and wake up with bits and so and you consciously wanted to write a book that appealed to teenage boys both of these books, you, is that no, what you the, the first one, the first one is, okay. is aimed at teenage boys. It's kind of if that's kind un- of, is that unusual for a, a young woman writer to write a book thinking I want to write a book for teenage boys. Well, I mean, I was nineteen when I started writing it, so I was dating them at the time, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought I'm going to write about one of these guys, yeah. and um, I want I'd I'd like to back then I thought I'd like to write a book that would appeal to real people where I felt I was never that into Harry Potter. And I know that's a bit of a controversial thing to say, but because it's, because Harry Potter has really, well, they really, they really helped teenagers get into reading. Um, I think it's great. I just, you know, I I was in my twenties when they came out. So it's like, I was not, I'm not one of those people who like, you know, read, you know, reads YA as much as some others. I don't either. Um, but I think, um, I think for me, I just wanted to write a realistic book with swearing and sex that would appeal to teenagers um, who were real people. And um, and there's authors working who, who do do that, like John Green and Aidan Chambers. Um, 
but that's what I wanted to do. So, so that was that book. And the, the funny thing is that I realized that those people that I was trying to get to who don't read, don't read. So if you want to make a career writing books, you're probably going to have to write for people who do read. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant insight. Um, and so with golden boy, did you have a target audience in mind? Cause this is dealing with like transgender. I don't think teenage boys are necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd love it if they would read it because it would probably help society be a much more, um, accepting place. But no, it is aimed for at people who do read books. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, in a way it's, I, th- I feel like it's quite a commercial book aiming at, you know, but women primarily, but women and men between the ages of, I don't know, you know, 20 to 60 adult It's, it's hard to break down a book demographically. It really is. Yeah. I, I really don't know. But it, just people who commonly read and enjoy reading about different experiences. I mean, people who read are interested people. So, um, writing about intersex, um, what is it? Is intersex? Is that a, is that a term inter- that we use in the States that yeah. I'm missing? Yes. It, well, it's relatively new. It came about in 1993. It's basically, it's a hermaphrodite okay. and, and they thought intersex sounded better and had less of, um, less prejudice. Okay. And so, um, it's somebody born with both sex organs. Am I totally missing? A bit chromosomally. Okay. Um, Max is chromosomally. The, the main character is chromosomally um, intersex. But oh. it can be like 20 different conditions that render you between male and female. But I thought it was a really interesting way to talk about just gender and the things that we expect from each other and we accept from each other. Um, so you have no like personal experience gender. with this, like people in your life or you didn't grow up? or Not close people, no. Okay. No. You're not a, you're not a man or no, no, no. I call everyone dude, but, <laughs> um, and so you wrote this book in how long you said two years. Um, it took six months to write, but mm-hmm. it took two years before that six months to mull over. And did you do a ton of research on, you know? Yeah, I did. I read quite a few books about the intersex condition and I, you know, obviously like everyone, I Wikipedia it first and that was, or Googled it. And that was, um, there's a ton of conflicting information and on the internet. No. no yeah, yeah, I know. Would crazy. you believe? <laughs> yeah. So I read a few books and they were much more, um, enlightening, but it's quite hard to find information. Um, did you meet people? I did speak to a few people, um, online, like Tumblr was actually a great resource because okay. you can find people who are genderqueer, pangender, trans, intersex, and you can read their blogs and read their life story and you feel quite intrusive doing it, but it's all online. So and then, they mean, they mean for it to be read. What about in the aftermath of the book's publication? Um, in the aftermath, I've met more. Yeah. I mean, do people reach out to you? Yeah, they have. And actually I, um, I was replying to a bunch of emails earlier today, which were all People who, um, like one woman who had a lesbian daughter, one person who um, had um, gender identity issues, a couple of trans people. So um, it is reaching that community. And I'm so pleased because I think that it's quite hard to reach those people from a traditional publisher. So, you know, with regard to a traditional publisher and with material like this, like how do you, when you roll this out, like how do you, try to reach readers like do you did you feel at any point that um it was it was going to be difficult to um 
present the gist of the book without turning people off? Or is there concern on the part of your publisher that this material might be poorly received or that people might be afraid of it? That was definitely a concern. And actually it was uh, myself and my agent originally were a little bit worried about, because my agent had said, write a commercial potty book because it's post-recession. We, you know, if you want to sell something, it has to be plotty, has to be commercial. Um, and then I wrote a book about an intersex person <laughs> that was plotty. Right, sure, yeah. But um, so when we sent it out to publishers, I don't think we mentioned that Max was intersex. And then a few of them read it, and um, and we were quite. And we met with some publishers, and we were quite um, almost insistent, I suppose, about it being treated very sensitively and maybe not mentioning that Max was intersex right up until publication because we felt that that might put people off. But then I think, I well, I personally didn't feel that it would put readers off because I think that readers tend to be much more open in a way than, than your traditional publishers. Well, and I think readers too, they allow for, yeah, you have to give credit to readers. They allow for a lot more... Uh, stuff to happen in the context of fiction than they might, you know, allow for in their own personal life sometimes. Do you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, I think that's true. But I think as well in the publishing world, um, particularly perhaps in the UK, it's some publishers that we talked to loved the book, but felt that it was just too much for an audience. And credit to you to my editor in the UK, um, Arzu Tarzan, who um, as edited, she edited the kite runner and the tiger's wife. And, um, that's a good, I mean, that's a, pretty... it's, a it's a brilliant editor. Yeah. I, I really, and she's really good. You know, there are some people who have a great reputation, but, but she's, she's been really wonderful. And she found the book and said, um, I want it and didn't have any hesitation over the fact that the the main characters intersex she very much liked the story so well and you know what um, too i mean like from a from a commercial perspective like it, it can be a hook well like, you know what as it's progressed um particularly actually the english version of the book doesn't have the fact that he's intersex on the cover and um they are going to go with that for the paperback version because the american version does have the fact i think it says we just look. Oh, I thought you meant like some sort of visual. <laughs> no, it has um, the walkers are hiding something you see. Max is special. Max is different. Max is intersex. And it has been a huge hook for readers. Well, and also for people who are potentially covering the book. Yeah, absolutely. It's something to talk about and it's an issue, right? Yeah. Well, we've got fantastic. Um, Atria, my publisher's here. We, you know, we were talking before we started recording <laughs> about how um, they've been really wonderful and the marketing that they've done has been. They do a book tour, which I think I've been told that they're very unusual in that, sending first-time authors on book tours. So myself and Sahar Dalajani, another of their debut authors this year, um, have both been out on book tours and um, across the States and into Canada. And then they also um, contact a lot of blogs and send review copies out. And they made um, they made 3,000 advanced reader copies for my book. And... Um, and they made them all with gold paper on. And I'm told that it was the most expensive arc that Atria have ever made. Oh, wow. And they sent sent them all out. And I'm, you know, I'm a newbie. You know, I'm not like a, a, ver a well-known author or anything. So That's a great show really, of faith. It's a great show of it's faith. It's absolutely a great show of faith. And I think that from talking to other authors with different publishers, 
I feel like, um, I feel like many publishers don't put that much behind, um, new authors, um, because I feel like they kind of let set their books out there and just see how they do. And if they do well, great, then we'll put more money into them next time. But I think that it's kind of a testament to how smart Atria are that they do put that much money into promoting you at the very beginning. Because, you know, there's authors who aren't promoted by their publishers. If they do end up having a long career, they're not going to want to stay with people that haven't had faith in them the whole time. Whereas I, you know, I don't have a bad word to say about Atria and I, I... as long as they want my next book, I won't be leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Until they deny my next book, yeah. at which point I'll have many negative things to say. Absolutely. <laughs> I was talking to um, Sahar because we, Sahar Dilajani, because we went for dinner last night and she was saying that she doesn't have, we, neither of us have two book deals um, with Atria, but she, in, in her contract and in my contract, there is a right of first refusal. And she thought that was such a negative way to put it. <laughs> they have the right to say no first before everyone else says Should be no. The right of first acceptance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. A strange language. So, um, with regard to this book and with regard to your acting, uh, history and what we were talking about earlier with respect to control and, wresting some of the uh, narrative control away from others, you know, that you kind of have to seed when you're working, um, you know, in film and television. Do you, did you, were you writing a part for yourself in this? No, I wasn't. And I suppose it's funny because I do write some scripts and we have a, uh, myself and a writing partner have a couple of scripts in the UK with our agent um, that are going out about now. And when I write scripts, I do think, hmm, okay, so what would I play? What small part am I going to put in here? Right. If I can negotiate. Like you get all the good, you're like, you get all the good lines, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like some part that's really funny, maybe funnier than the main character, (laughs) but very brief. (laughs) No one's going to want to do it but me. Right. Um, but, um, there is a freedom that comes with, with books and, it's not, that's not the way I think about them. I don't think what's going to happen in the future and am I going to be able to act in this? And there has been a lot of, um, filmy buzz around golden boy and, and, uh, a a number of production companies who are, yeah, interested. I mean, obviously it will be a challenging film, but I see it as kind of a kids are all right. You know, sexuality within the, within a very lovely middle-class setting, which is golden boy really, but gender. So, it's accessible and relatable in the same way, I think. Um, so how far along is that process? I mean, just like public like production companies are looking at just, it. No one's, I'm just no one's meeting optioned it. with people. No one's optioned it yet. No, I kind of want to, you know what? It's, it's really overwhelming with, with thinking about all of that because you don't, I, I meet someone and I think, wow, they're, they're great. And they're saying all the right things. Um, but I don't know whether they'll do all the right things and, and, I'm actually, I'm, I really enjoy acting because you do have all that interplay with people. And when you're doing a good project and you have a good director and a good production team and great lighting and a fantastic DOP, it all comes together and it looks really fantastic. And I love working with people. I don't actually enjoy most of all the things I do, the process of writing alone in my room. I like working with people. But it, 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 it is slightly unnerving to think, okay, so I'm sending the book out there and, you know, it will become what it will become as a film. And I guess I just want to spend some time making sure there's the right team behind it. Sure, and, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm quite concerned that it doesn't become. Um, I think we have a bit of a problem in England with, um, and of course we did talk about the royal family, and so I don't, I don't want to come across as harping on about class issues, but um, I don't want it to be like many of those English films where everybody is speaking received pronunciation. This very kind of well-to-do, and it's set in Notting Hill, and it's absolutely <laughs> beautiful, and you know. Um, Everybody comes from the same kind of backgrounds and has these strange accents. I'm seeing Hugh really, Grant. I'm seeing Hugh Grant. Yeah, completely. I mean, I, I think he's really funny, but every British film is is like that. Yeah. Um, particularly the ones that get marketed to the states. And if it does get made in England, I would like it to be kind of accessible for an English audience as well. So 95% of people in England don't speak like that. And um, so I'd want it to be a bit more with normal people. Um, and it could be done in the States as well because it's been, the book's d- doing really well here. And um, it's a bit of a, I think one of the reasons why the book is doing well is because it feels like it could happen anywhere. It's about a small town community. Right. It could be your small town community. So. So, and it is doing well? I mean, like, if, has it exceeded expectations for you? Um, well, I, I guess I didn't, I, I don't have that many expectations. I just... Um, I'm just, I'm quite happy that it's been published, right. but then, but it has been doing really well. I think. I mean, Goodreads is something that I regularly check. And, sure? It's okay <laughs> and, to admit that. Yeah, and that's <laughs> that's quite a good indicator of with people coming back and reviewing. And the funny thing is, I think sometimes you think things seem so instant when you're outside and you see another author being published, and immediately they're very well known. But then when you look at it closely they're published and then they do a tour and then um, people read their book, uh, people who are really interested in books read their book and then gradually those people pass the books to their friends and their parents and the book starts to reach a bigger audience. And, um, you know, I thought when the hardback came out that would be it, that would be the big thing. But it turns out that actually the paperback is kind of the bigger thing in a way. And um, although a lot happens when the hardback comes out, it all builds up to well, when takes, the paperback comes out. It takes time. It takes time. I mean, yeah. A, it takes time for people to read a book yeah. as opposed to just spending an hour and a half in a movie theater. Yeah. And then to read it and like it and pass it to a friend who then keeps it on their nightstand for three months before yeah, they finally absolutely. pick it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, mean <laughs> I speak from experience, but it's a slower process. And I think that there are you know situations where things really catch and it happens for a very very small number of books like you talk about harry potter yeah like, what was that <laughs> you know what i'm saying like yeah. really what was that who knows i mean every single house in, in america with children suddenly needed this wizard in their yeah. life you know and i don't you know i don't think anybody can can define what it is about that i mean other than no. that it's a good book but no or predict it yeah. and i think that's what you know publishers and um studios who buy books to make into films try to do they try to predict what will be the next um you know 50 shades or girl with a dragon tattoo (laughs) 50 shades unbelievable yeah i know and it it it's very hard to do because you do get girl with a dragon tattoo incredible books and obviously i think they're very you know even though they're written a few quite a few years ago now but they're very of the moment in terms of having more um female protagonists that are not stereotypes um, in our culture, but then there's 50 shades and that's a book about, 
this very 50s relationship. It? Have you read it? I actually, I had to write an article for a magazine, so I have read the first one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, no, I haven't had a chance, but <laughs> I hear well, <laughs> interesting things. I mean, you have a lot of books here, so I would probably <laughs> read those first. <laughs> um, it's not, the, it's not the most, it's not the best written book. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Above everything. Just, it's just the grammar that annoys me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So then, it sounds like because of, uh, you know, the early success, you're relatively young. This book is doing well. It's been published in England. It's been published in the States. You have a, a wonderful, like decorated editor oh, who yeah. acquired it. Like you've had a pretty good early ride to yeah. say the least. Like, did you struggle with this? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like with writing, like you said, you wrote two unpublished novels, but like most writers have like a pretty rocky road to the mountaintop. Like, was there ever like, you know, horrible depressions or like adversity where you're like, oh, this isn't going to happen. Self-doubt. Like, did you go through any of that typical stuff or did you sort of, are you just sort of like a, uh, like a rock yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like built tough. Um, I, there have definitely been times when I've been very, um, down about things, but I, I never really questioned the fact that I would do something creative I mean the funny thing is I wanted to be an actress and I never thought about being a writer until I'd finished my first book and I thought I'll send it off to agents we'll just see if they reject it horribly then I'll know I'm not that good (laughs) (laughs) um so so but I had those I never had those points where I thought that I wouldn't do something creative because I almost made it impossible for my myself not to do something creative. I didn't do a degree. I did very well in school, but I didn't I want to do say, one. You, so, okay, so you went you went to high school, then you didn't go to college, or you did? I didn't go for a year. I put it off, and then I went for a month, and I thought, nope, I was right to put it off. <laughs> <laughs> I am just in a pub. And um, the degrees in England are very different from the States. And I think that it might have been different if I'd been to a college here because you get to do so many different things here. Even if you're majoring in, I don't know, biochemistry, you'll do a bunch of classes in lots of different things. And in England, I did film studies and all we did was talk about film. And it wasn't, we didn't even do that much history of film, which I thought it would be more about the history and how films are made and uh, the different movements of you know, the, the industry, but it was more about watching films, critiquing them. And that's all we did every day. And I just found it, um, unbearable and not, not like real life, you know? And also I was critiquing people's work and I never made a film. I thought that was kind of <laughs> right. Like who was I? Right. Right. So, right. Okay. So you dropped yeah, out and then so I dropped out and then started what going on auditions and, um, yeah, I'd already, I was already, um, I'd already been on a, an audition for a film like in the summer and I'd got a film. So while I was doing that month, I was filming little bits on something. And I was thinking, you know, the runner on this film would know more about this film than the people critiquing it and saying, oh, they did it in black and white because of the atmosphere and the racial tension. <laughs> and it was like, no, they didn't have any money. Right. And that's why that happened. Um, and so I kept going on auditions and then actually just maybe six months later I wrote I finished Flick and I sent it off so I'm really glad that I didn't go to university I don't think it's for everyone yeah I mean you were so you were 19 and you finished Flick I was 21 when I finished Flick okay, yeah I started uni about 1920 
that kind of age. Okay. And yeah. so then what about uh, the auditioning process for acting? Like, did you get a part in a movie relatively quickly or did you go I, through? The first audition I went, I got a, a small part in an independent film. And I, I was kind of lucky because I started working just before the recession hit. So people were still paying people quite well and, and there was still work out there. And then suddenly there was nothing and everything, there were a few things and nothing was paid. And, you know, for someone from Grimsby who's moved and you have to go live in London, obviously in the same way that you might have to come to LA or New York, um, if you want to be an actor here, then I had to move to London. The rent was very steep. You know, I was, had to work as a waitress. It just not being paid was not an option. And so, um, especially when you're being offered prostitute roles, like (laughs) I'm not going to get down to my underwear for no money. Come on. So, um, not that I would get under my underwear for money. That's not like a career option that I would, I would do, but, um, (laughs) yeah, neither here. Um, so that's kind of throwing me. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. That's a troubling visual. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I just gave up college and started going to auditions and started doing things and then, and then started writing because I thought this is just unsustainable when I'm not being paid that much and, you know, there aren't that many roles out there. And, um, so in a way, like, like many entrepreneurs, I think the recession did kickstart me into thinking I have to do something for myself because otherwise I'm just going to drown. So like, so the recession had played a role in you deciding to write or like shifting your primary focus. Yeah. In a way. And it's interesting because like they always say that like the entertainment industry is sort of recession proof or that it actually does well during difficult economic times because people want cheap entertainment or whatever. Yeah, but even the film people industry, are so depressed. Right. Just take me to the movies. <laughs> but it you know, it was felt it was felt there as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um I think it's still people still make films, um, but then people just pay people less. And I mean we you've seen here I was listening to um a podcast from KCRW's The Business with um an intern on Black Swan. Yeah. It was talking about suing the the Fox Searchlight and the production company. And um, there have been a lot more people doing that, I think, suing for unpaid work. No, and I, I want to say interns from the website Gawker just like filed a lawsuit because they were working like an entire summer and like long 15-hour right. days and getting nothing for yeah. it. Yeah. And the thing is, in uh, you know, in our parents' days, these, these internships would have been jobs. And that's actually how you run an economy. You pay people and then they go out and they buy things. And that pays other people. And when you don't pay people, your economy worsens. It, it doesn't get better. So, you know, the film industry and um, publishers and agents and um, do have unpaid interns, but it's only going to, going to worsen the condition of the industries at the end of the day because you're going to get people who you train up and then they can't afford to stay in those industries so they don't build businesses and compete with you and drum up more interest in books or films. I'm sensing a political future for you. <laughs> it sounds convincing. Yeah, maybe I'll write a book about it. <laughs> yeah, there, you go. there you go. So, uh, and you know, we've already touched on this, but you came over here, you've got your visa, you have to work as a writer, you've got a two book deal. So you're working on the next thing. I am. How far along are you? Not very far. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a May deadline? Yes. So I'm predicting like a 
like a manic burst of writing sometime this fall? Or? Well, that is the hope. That's, That's the what hope. I mean about it's very <laughs> difficult to be like, oh, yeah, I'm just a hippie. I'll write when I want to write and I'll be that like the rebel that just won't write every day. <laughs> right. But um, that doesn't guarantee that I'll get a book in in May. So what I'm doing is I'm starting writing the idea that I really like right now. What is it? Can you speak of it or is it superstition? Um, I think if I, it's a bit, well, I will say one thing. I'm trying to write from a female perspective because I actually find that really hard. Um, I wrote from a male perspective in the first book, Flick. In Golden Boy, there are six perspectives. Three of them are female, two of them are male, and one of them is male and female. <laughs> so um, I am moving towards being able to write in a voice that resembles my own. But I find it really difficult because, God, it, so- it sounds so weird, but because of chiclet and everything, the moment you write about being a, a woman, you start writing about... Um, things that you see in literature for women like dating and and you know i'm not that just, interested I just saw in like, dating i just saw like 500 <laughs> books with either cupcakes or strollers on the oh cover. my gosh yeah and yeah. the covers are like pink and mint green yes exactly yeah. it's like an but you know it, clearly there's an audience and i don't mean to denigrate because yeah. like some of these no, books are good but some of them are great and some of them are really important because they they don't undermine the importance of um of home life and love um, but at the same time, there should be more books for women. I, I actually, I fly a lot and I tend to go into those, um, bookstores that are in airports. Sure. Yeah. Some I, of the last bookstores around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I look around for like a good book about like a female fighter, you know, somebody really interesting that I would relate to because, you know, she's maybe about my age and she's, she's a woman. Are and- you a fighter? I mean. Just people who are tough, yeah. like tough women. And yeah. I know so many tough women who like work really hard and then play really hard and like bring up their kids and you know don't that aren't like loaded but you know just fight all the time and so you mean like fighter like from a more a broader sense not like somebody who's out there punching and kickboxing i mean like either really (laughs) i mean like women who are tough yes i I get it i want to read books about about those people and i was looking around and i i do actually i really like um, watching thrillers on TV. And I think there are some really good female led thrillers and it's not that I hate male led thrillers. It's just that like, I get sick of seeing a bunch of films with like, it's a bunch of guys. It's never any girl. And then when she shows up, they all like touch her on the ass and go, Oh, you're so pretty girl. Like, <laughs> it's just like, Oh man, I just do not feel like I relate. Um, so I would like to see more books like that. And, um, I find it hard to write in a female voice because I don't read those books. I think it's hard to be what you can't see. I do think that's true. So um, I am having a go at writing a book that's about a woman from from her point of view, and she she's is, tough. Is she a nin- like a ninja? Like, she's like is- a ninja. Yeah. <laughs> she's a domestic ninja. <laughs> yeah. If that shows up, I don't have to give you royalties, do no, I? No, 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 no. I, you're, you're in the clear. Cool. Um, so there's that. Any screenwriting since you're going to be in Los Angeles? I, mean, I know you said you had written some scripts and that th- those are back in England, but like, do you have as part of your plan while you're here for three years to... Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would like to do that. I um, Obviously, I have Golden Boy and that, that you know, will hopefully become a film and... Um, I love film and I grew up on film even more than I grew up on books. Um, and even if somebody want, I mean, if somebody wanted to hire you or called you out for an audition here, you couldn't do it. 
Um, well, it's not, it's not technically true. I mean, it's quite, when you're a company like HBO or Fox or somebody like that, then, um, you know, if I, if I approached HBO and I said, <clears throat> I have a, a script, I have a pilot, um, it's for me, they do a lot of like ride to performer gigs. And if they said, oh yeah, great. And like, we'll have you perform in it. Then, you know, that it, it's easy for them to get a visa, but I can't like go up for independent movies and things like that. Right. So I'm just going to keep doing, I'm back and forth. So I'm going to keep doing them in England and I'll keep writing over here and we'll kind of see what happens. But I do, I, I enjoy screenwriting and I enjoy the language of films and that I enjoy that vignette type language where you just capture what happens and then you don't, you don't need any peripheral prose or any like packing, you know? And um, I, I like writing books that are quite lean. And Golden Boy, in a way, isn't, because it's about lots of different perspectives. So you sometimes even see scenes twice. But um, but I do like that language, where so, you just write what you want to write and nothing else. Okay. And so all of the stuff that you've done and that you've had success at doing at a very young age, you essentially did... The, you know, from what I can gather with very little formal education. Yeah. <laughs> you have no like formal, like you didn't go to like some acting school in London and work at some conservatory that you didn't go to some writing, you know, and it, like yeah. the, in the States we have the MFA thing where you go to graduate school, like you're basically self-taught. Yeah. Like what, what were some formative experiences for you that you feel like really, in, um, you know, served as like a uh, instruction on how to do this stuff? Or are you basically intuitive? Um, I mean, I think intuition is really important. And I sometimes think the first draft of something you do is the best and that you maybe shouldn't tinker with it too much. Um, but my agent that I had, I, she's not an agent anymore. She's um, gone into publishing. Um, but her name was Jo Unwin and um, she was at Convalon Walsh, um, who are still my agents. And she, um, she loved my first book and she put it out. And then I said, okay, I'm going to go away and write you another book. And I wrote a thousand words a day and I just wrote without planning at all. And then when I came back, she said, this is great. I love your prose. I'm so glad I represent you. There's no plot. There's no discernible plot here. So, um, I went away and then wrote a plotty book. Did you have to outline or anything or did you just like focus on plot as you were writing? I don't, I don't write down an outline because I think as soon as you've written something down, the the is it catharsism or it's cathartic so it leaves you and then i'm no longer able to write that scene so i keep it in my head and i mull things over and i build a story in my head and um that's what i did for the next book that i wrote the next manuscript and um she really liked that it was very plotty it was very page turnery but it was set in ireland in the 1950s and she rightly pointed out, I'm very contemporary. I have a very contemporary voice. I tend to launch into books and go through them and be done. So a lot of research into voice and planning isn't my strong suit. It's other people's strong suit. You know, I'm, I'm no Hillary Mantle. So, so, um, well, that so was that, a big formative experience for me, cool. actually learning through writing and her notes and her taking the time to not, let me go because I hadn't written another book. Well, you know? okay. Well, this makes me feel a little bit better. You've had some adversity. Like your agent said, no, like you need to yeah. stop it. And you, I mean, it takes a long time and a lot of human energy to write a book. So 
It sounds to me, though, that you like received this news fairly graciously. You weren't pissed off. No, I just went away and wrote another book. And I, I think, you know, the the I get I'm young and I guess it sounds like there's been nothing difficult. But um, in England, and I think this is still true of the States as well, to a certain extent, maybe not quite the same extent. But there is, um, you know, I come from somewhere where people don't I don't know writers. I don't know any writers. And then you go to London and almost everyone that's... They all have a novel. <laughs> they don't, there's, not, there's a lot of published authors who have parents who are in publishing or know people that are in publishing or grew up around people who were doing very well in the creative industries. And so when you do that, the moment that you do write a book, it gets to the right people. Sure. And you feel that there is an opportunity to write a book and make a living from it because you know people who are millionaires and do that. So that, I guess, was the the difficult thing for me. But books, more than acting, it's been easier to get to people from where I come from because from people the judge you on the, from the streets of Grimsby, <laughs> from the hard salt of the sea, um, because people judge you on the creative work that you do and they don't judge you on you know, what they see when you walk in a room and who, you know, that's the yeah. thing about a book. I mean, it's either on the page or it's not a book. Yeah, exactly. A book is, um, a book is God. There's like, there's some brilliant word that I could end that sentence with, but it's just not there in my head. It's some, it's something like it's democratizing. It's, that's it. Absolutely. A book is democratizing and you can touch, you can reach people and touch them in their heart. <laughs> um, even when you have, you wouldn't, you would never be able to get to them in real life. So have you had any experiences where like people that you admire or people that maybe, I don't know, unexpected people have said nice things about your work or, you know what I'm saying? Or, or maybe somebody who's like way outside of the age range that we were discussing earlier has come up to you and said, I loved your book. Yeah. The, um, at, at some of the events, Actually, at one of the events, there was this guy, and he was maybe 66. I don't know why in my head. I was like, he's <laughs> he 66. Si he was 66 he's and definitely a half. 66, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was, um, it was in a town quite a, a way away from a big city, and in, I'll just say, a contested state. <laughs> and... Um, one of those ones that's purple on Nate Silver's like little <laughs> map. Yeah, sure, yeah. And um, he, um, you know, he could he could well have been a Democrat. He could well have been a Republican. But he sat there and he came in and and I did the reading and he just wandered in. He didn't know what the book was about, but he listened to it. And afterwards, I said, "Are there any questions?" As I usually do. And he said, he put his hand up immediately and said, "What's intersex then?" And I explained about, and it's quite, intersex is quite easy to say, but explaining about a hermaphrodite is quite difficult to do. It's sure, like, yeah. I wish people would just read the book. Right. But I told him and he said, oh, that's really interesting. And I think that there's something about intersexuality. There's no preconceptions. Like, like there are preconceptions about gay people or um, trans because people know about them. But with intersex, it's a really interesting subject because you can use it to talk about all those other things but it's a new word and a new thing. But he sat there for over half an hour. It was the longest Q&A I did. And we were in a round circle. 
and so it was a really nice Q&A because we were just having a conversation and passing back and forth and there were a lot of people. But he came up with um, three or four questions over the course of that half an hour. And other people had other questions. It wasn't just him talking and me talking. But um, that was really nice and really surprising because I felt like he was somebody who this book wouldn't necessarily have appealed to before he met me and had a conversation about it. But he was really open to the idea of the book. Yeah, you did buy it. You did, okay. Because sometimes people come to your readings and like they walk out and you're like, wait a minute. Yeah, <laughs> hang on. You know what they're doing? They're walking out the independent bookstore and going and getting it cheaper on Amazon. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, but that was really surprising. And I've had a lot of, it, it's been really nice when LGBTQIA people say that, oh, this book meant a lot to me, especially young people. Um, but that was one of the most surprising, I think. Wow. And kind of delightful. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So uh, it's been fun talking with you. Yeah. And it's welcome, really to, nice welcome to Los Angeles. <laughs> Thanks. And I wish you well on this next book. I hope that everything, you know, falls into place and that it's done by its deadline. Cool. I hope the little subconscious person in the back of my brain just gets <laughs> it done and leaves me alone. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was nice talking with you, Abby. You too. Thanks for having me. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's it for now. That is Abigail Tartelin. Go get her novel. It's called Golden Boy. It's available here in the States from Atria Books and over in the UK from Weidenfeld and Nicholson. You can find her online at abigailtartelin.com. You can follow her on Twitter, where her handle is at Abigail's Brain, and I believe she's on the Facebook, too. Thanks to Amazon Publishing for sponsoring today's show. Be sure to go get Brilliance, the new thriller by Marcus Seiki. Available now at Amazon.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can also access premium content and the full archives as well all via the app. So please go get that. The app itself is free. Uh, Otherwise, closing thoughts, consumption, media consumption, literary consumption, quality of consumption, uh, the intersection of media, money, and political power. You know, I don't want to sound prude. I realize you have to be an adult too and learn how to separate and manage your time. But, you know, I think that other stuff is somewhat real, too. If you ingest too much toxic stuff, it's going to make you feel sick. You know, if you read if you read uh, This Town, you're going to be uh, probably a little bit riveted and a little bit nauseous. <laughs> There's my blurb. And you know what? I, I also want to say uh, that Leibovich, the author, Leibovich, and pr- forgive me if I'm screwing up the pronunciation of your name. I should know this, but... Uh, it's an act of courage in a lot of ways to expose some of this stuff. You know, very rarely do you see journalists writing stuff that, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Very rarely do you see journalists covering power today, writing stuff that makes the powerful likely to disconnect from them. So hopefully it's a career maker instead of a career breaker. You know, that's what I'd like to see. Please remember that James Thurber died of a brain tumor and that Samuel Beckett once sat through a doubleheader at Shea Stadium. That is all for now. 
Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Abigail Tartelin. I will be back on uh, Wednesday with another episode of this program, and uh, hopefully I will be feeling less anxious and uh, less down on humanity. Maybe uh, my outlook will be uh, sunnier, significantly less dystopian. Says the guy whose podcast logo involves uh, protective eyewear and a gas mask. (laughs) 